Oh, hello. Welcome to episode nine of Music and Mindset Matters podcast. I'm your host, Christy Russell, and it is my absolute pleasure this week to bring you an interview with Dr. Anita Collins. Um, Anita has been on my wish list um, for a long time now, and I'm so pleased to be able to chat with her today. Uh, she is an award-winning educator, researcher, and writer in the field of brain development and music learning. And in Australia, Anita is probably best known for her role as on-screen expert and campaign lead for the Don't Stop the Music documentary. It aired on the ABC back in 2018. Um, she is also the founder of Bigger Better Brains and she's also the author of The Music Advantage, which is how learning music helps your child's brain and well-being, as well as The Lullaby Effect, which is the science of singing to your child. I really highly recommend both of those books um, because she really has a wonderful way and she's actually internationally recognised for her unique way of translating the scientific research of neuroscientists, psychologists, um, developmental psychologists, translating all of that information to parents, teachers, students, you know, people who might not have that musical background. Um, and really getting that music, uh, that knowledge across to them, the benefits of, of musical learning on development, um, well-being, cognition. And she's just spent so many, so much of her time, um, not only as part of her PhD, but um, you know, in her in her work, you know, close to 100 researchers in labs across the US, Canada. Uh, Europe, Australia. She's written opinion columns for The Age, The Conversation. She's authored papers, peer-reviewed journals. Um, she's even a specialist technical writer for the OECD Education Framework for 2030. So, I mean, she's just got some amazing um, experiences, knowledge and real passion for this industry. Um, she's also a TEDx speaker and the author of one of the most watched TED education films ever made. And I'll make sure I put those things in the show notes for you if you'd like to, to find out a bit more about it. Um, what I really enjoyed about today's chat was that um, we go into um, the importance of using musical learning in that pre-school um, birth to five space. Um, to really prepare the brain for the more formal learning, the more literacy learning. We even, you know, we talk, so our early re reading skills really is what that translates into. Um, we talk about using musical learning as a tool to support and boost brain and cognitive function, but also as an intervention tool when there might be language delays, cognitive delays. Um, you know, there's... Um, really really a lot of research at the moment to, found to improve neural communication issues associated with autism, ADHD, dyslexia and other learning delays. So there's really a lot of you know there's a lot of neuromusical research that we talk about but there's also really great uh, practical ideas that she shares with us and um, just some just some everyday chats. We even go into a little bit of the influence of pop culture on our perception of what a musical person is. You know, the idea that uh, singers are born and not made. So it's a fantastic interview. I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. And um, yeah, I think now is a great time to go into our little intro. So grab yourself a drink or pop your earphones in, um, get yourself comfy and let's dive into the conversation. Hello 
and welcome to the Music and Mindset Matters podcast. I'm your host, Christy Russell. I'm a music and mindset mentor and founder of Movers and Shakers Music. I'm also a trained early childhood teacher, piano teacher, musician, mum of two, wife and passionate Aussie entrepreneur. I'm on a mission to spread the magic and power of music and mindset to as many people as possible. Every day I tap into the power of music and mindset and every day I notice how much more focused, resilient and connected I am at work and at home. You could even say I am more in tune with myself and the world around me and I want that for you too. If you're passionate about early childhood education, curious about the relationship between music, mindfulness and the human brain, then this podcast is for you. Join me each week as I discuss all things to do with music, mindfulness, and why it matters so much to be advocating for this in early childhood. My goal is to inspire you with stories, research findings, and a whole heap of practical tips so that you can have the confidence and skills to embed music and mindset practices into your daily routines and your early learning programs. Because when we love music, we love learning, we love life. Let's tune in. Okay, well, welcome Dr. Anita Collins to the Music and Mindset Matters podcast. It's really lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. It's really, really good to be able to chat to you. Yeah, I've been uh, waiting for this moment for a little while, actually. I had you on my um, my wish list for when I started the podcast um, only oh, a couple of months ago. So mm-hmm. it's great to have you here. And I was going to ask you to give us your little elevator pitch, but it doesn't really translate in Australia. So maybe <laughs> maybe we could do like a backyard Barbie pitch, just a couple of sentences for people who might not um, have come into your world. Um, so that's always hard to do. I was like, I lose everything. Um, I start always start by saying I am a music teacher and I'm still a practicing music teacher, uh, meaning I actually practice my craft. Um, if that makes sense. And I, but I'm also very interested. I'm a researcher and a writer in the field of music learning and brain development. Uh, and I came to that through um, wanting to do a PhD, needing to find something to. To study and I thought if I understood what was happening in the brains of my students then maybe I could teach them better and it was really really simple since then um, I've been very lucky to be able to share that research with as many people as I possibly can but also then to find ways to help schools and teachers and governments and whole countries um, to improve the provision of music education for every child um, and making sure that that helping them to solve the problems of of how do they make that happen. So that's my backyard Barbie pitch. Usually yeah. someone goes, oh, and then they don't talk to me again. And then they go on to the next person. <laughs> exactly. It's a lot of information to process because you're in one way you are, um, you know, I don't want to say just a regular music teacher, but in one way you are doing exactly what a lot of people do. And then the mm. other way is that you are really going really deep into the brain, the brain functioning, um, how we develop as humans and over that lifespan. So then that brings the element of, oh, wow, okay, well, there must be lots of research on that. And then people sort of tend to shut down. But what mm. I love about um, what a, I love about the way that you advocate for musical learning is that you really give it a clear um, it's not like you simplify it for simplifying sake, but you give all of that really, um, really 
probably um, tricky information when it comes to the neuroscience and the research and the statistics and you give it in a way that's really um, able for people to actually translate that into their practice. Um, that was a long-winded way of saying that, but you're really turning that knowledge into practice, which is really important. Um, and it's interesting that you you say that you um, make sure that you let people know that you are a music teacher because, um, again, that gives you the ability to say, well, this is what I've done in my experience and I also have the knowledge to, you know, to keep learning and to keep reflecting and, you know, that's what all educators do, isn't it, really? We're in yeah, that absolutely. Growing humans, maybe not growing finances or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it, and it's also interesting too because I first came into your um, into your world, I suppose, through the um, "Don't Stop the Music" series, mm. ABC series that that aired in Australia. Mm. Uh, when was that? Twenty one. Twenty eighteen. It was. Oh, Twenty eighteen. Oh, long time. Mm. Yeah. How did, um, can you tell us a bit about how that actually happened? Because that was after, was that after you had your PhD, after you got your PhD? Yeah, so some of the timeline things, 2014, 2013 I finished my PhD, 2014 was the year that the TED Ed video was yes. released, the one that, that is, you know, how mu learning music, learning an instrument benefits your brain. Um, and then what came after that is also my TEDx talk, which is about, asking the question, you know, what would be the difference if every child had music education? So those two things came and then from there I started to establish um, a presence within the community of going, we have this research, you know, how can we share and communicate with it? Um, and one of the groups that contacted me, and this is, I've, I've, I think I've helped seven or eight different production companies now, um, contacted me and basically said we're going to do this don't stop the music documentary it's like the one that was in the uk but we're going to make some fundamental changes and basically i was just advising and helping them to understand um the field of music education in australia none of them were music educators none of them i don't think even many of them were musically trained yeah. fabulous production company absolutely wonderful people but just this wasn't their world so I was just there, they would ring and they would ask lots of questions and, and I was just there helping them out. And then as I've learned with documentary making is that it's it's a long and winding journey. And one of the things that happened is they went into, um, the ABC became um, the distributor of the documentary, which means they start working in partnership. And they had Guy Sebastian attached to it and he was very excited, but the ABC went, we actually want what they call a two-hander, which means two people that kind of bring different things to the process rather than one single presenter. Um, I think part of it was guys said, I'm absolutely happy to inspire the kids, but this, the education bit is is not um, what I'm, he has been a teacher before and he has taught, but um, I'm not, I haven't done very much of it. I definitely don't know about the research. So if we're going to do it this way, then I need someone who understands that research. So that's when I changed from being someone who was just, helping the production company get their head around what they were going to do to someone who ended up being on screen and ended up being the campaign lead for the campaign that came afterwards. So it was a long, long, like I think I think in the end we, by the time we'd finished, I'd been working with them for four years on and off through different things. And, and I do a lot of that. I do a lot of advising um, about certain things. I've had, I've done it with Jamie Oliver's company in um, the UK. I've done it with a whole bunch of other companies as well and it's just they happen to be doing something about music education and they need 
they need to just clarify it so that their team understands. And I love those conversations. They're great. Yeah, and I think they're really, um, again, it's really important to be able to unpack all the research and tell people who don't who don't already love music or who don't who think it's like an extra thing you know it's not important it's not that important it's just an extra but it really isn't I mean all the all the research is showing that it is an absolute essential and I um one of the things because I'm doing studying some of your neuro music courses online that you offer through bigger better brains and that constant idea that why aren't we including music education like we include maths and English you know because we don't teach maths to then be mathematicians do we Mm -hmm. so why can't we bring musical learning in as an absolute supercharger for the brain even Mm -hmm. if we're not going to become musicians you know it's not about the Mm -hmm. end point it's about that journey Mm -hmm. um I, I and that's so, that's so much of what I do, which uh, what I found. I thought all I was doing was sharing the research, but actually, it's a it's a type of myth busting. It's a type of uh, figuring out what the myths are. And with music education, they're quite deeply held and subconscious. I think for a lot of people, until you start to ask the right questions and then go, oh no, well that child shouldn't learn music because they're not talented. It's yes. like, well, through what prism are you seeing talent? And how are you perceiving that? And then, so, yeah, so much of what I do is about raising those myths up and then countering those myths in a way that people can start to begin to consider changing their minds because changing our minds is is an incredibly um, rare thing to do. It is, and it's really hard. And, um, you know, you you talk about generational change. I mean, there's that real, real idea that, you know, a musical person is someone who can sing in tune or someone who learns an instrument. And that's taking, you know, it's putting such a, an idea, you know, a mythical idea that it's only for certain people or only for people that can afford it, which is absolute untruth, you know. Mm. The more that we, the more that we include this kind of thinking early on, I mean, you know, my background is all birth to five, that really early, early education, the more we can have these conversations and have musical learning in our early learning programs, that to me seems like the shift that we need to make generationally. Mm. But I think also part of what I've learned um, is a very deep respect for where someone is sitting with their belief system about music. It's not that they're wrong, yes, but what I'm really interested in is how do they get to the place where they currently are about their belief? What has informed that? And then what goes, what can I do from there to, and I don't ever talk about changing their mind. I talk about upskilling them, updating them, you know, something about adding in and using the research in a way that can be a catalyst for thinking differently about something. Yeah, that's a great um, lens to look through, isn't it really? Like a that's really a mindset lens, that positive mindset lens to look through rather than you're wrong, you have to, you have to think differently. What do you think is like what from talking to so many people and, you know, having these conversations and running all the workshops that you do, do you find that there's a common element of, of this belief system where it's come from? Um, There's not a common element. I would say there are probably a couple of influences and they're very modern day as in, well, there's a couple of different ones. One is this whole idea that um, yeah, the exact connection that you learn music in order to be an elite performing musician who's earning their 
their salary, their money from performing on stage. Like it's this direct connection. Um, and this this whole idea that, that that's the only reason why you study music in school. So what it is is music used to be that everyone used to do it. It was a part, you know, part of the four things we did in the curriculum along with, you know, um, literature and philosophy. And I always forget oh, the third yeah. one, but music was the other one. Yeah, exactly. That used to be our curriculum. How has it gone from that to this incredibly narrow idea and thing? And, and there's a lots, lots of levers that have done that. But one of them is that this whole idea that then, okay, um, musicians are born and not made. And part of that from a, um, a pop culture side of thing is anything that's like Australia's Got Talent or um, The Voice or any of those because in order, and they're, they're doing reality TV and live TV and, and part of it is that they need to paint a story and it's a much more compelling story that someone has come out on stage, never sung before, but loves singing in the backyard while they're watering, and then suddenly they wow all the judges and then they're, they're this, this unfound, completely new, undiscovered talent. And they they paint that picture when in many cases, and in most cases when I've spoken to any of these people who've, who've gone on stage and have had that reaction, they have had singing lessons since they were five and they have learned piano and they have been in the school choir. They've had all the music education, but we're being presented a version um, on these types of shows. And and the thing is, it's not just Australia's Got Talent or The Voice in Australia, it's The Voice in the UK and it's America's Got Talent and, you know, all those sorts of different shows. We we now have this connection with what you know what's been on the media all around the world through social media and we see the little you know cute little um clips that come on and we watch them and we feel something very very beautiful and wonderful when this person gets up but we're not actually being told the whole story so I think part of that is a music's got smaller within the curriculum second thing is we've been presented a version of talent or not talent that has nothing to do with hard work and has nothing to do with dedication and has nothing to do with the actual music learning process. Um, I then think that the other the other one that comes into it is that it's not fully funded within all schools, meaning parents often have to pay extra. Yeah. And so then it becomes, well, it is an addition on top because literally it is an addition on top of your finances. Yeah. So then it becomes, well, I'm only going to put, and then we get into this cost-benefit idea of, well, I'm only going to put the money in if they practice and if they're going to be really good, um, which means that you, you don't know that. You don't know that for years. Um, so I think there's a whole bunch of, and as I start to just try and dissect where these ideas have come from, I also think the fourth one I'd add to that is there are a lot of people who have what I would call art scars, which is a, an emotional scar which has been made by something to do that's artistic. In music, the really common one I hear is kid who's singing in the preschool choir or the primary school choir and the teacher comes up and goes, just move your mouth and don't sing because your voice doesn't fit in or you don't sound very good. And that creates an emotional scar. Now, a whole bunch of parents I have spoken to and this and speaking about the age group that you work with as well, I often talk about the incredible importance of singing to your child because it creates connection and it creates serotonin, it creates this incredible bond like no other activity that we do. It's incredibly important. But then I've had parents come up to me afterwards and going, look, my kid's seven and I never sang to them when they were three. Have I, have I, 
have I damaged them for life? Yeah. There's a real concern that they've damaged them. So I think there's a whole bunch of things in there. And then when I speak about why are you scared about your voice and a lot of them go, well, when I was seven, I was told I wasn't allowed to sing in the choir. So there's, there's some emotional scars sitting there, particularly around music and music education and how people feel about themselves as musical beings, which then come out in the next generation, which are often the kids we deal with as music teachers. So I think there's a lot of different things that feed into those beliefs and my approach is to just nudge those and question those and help people nudge and question those um, with the hope that over time, and I think it's happening, uh, people are starting to to shift their understanding and beliefs around music education. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot in that, isn't there? Because you're you are really dealing with the generation before us and then the generation right now and then the generation to come and um one thing that really stands out of that is is that talking with children um today you know they don't care if they sound whatever they actually don't have any judgments they don't judge parents for for singing or you know it's as we grow up and we we get those other people judging us or those other reactions from other people um and it's really important to um to work with young children these days I believe you know expressing ourselves musically so that they think oh you know this adult is is expressing themselves it's okay for me to do it. It's safe for me to do it. Um, but, yeah, you're right. We've got to get a lot of these emotional scars and this sort of trauma that's that's sort of weighed us down, got to release mm. that. And, you know, music musical expression comes in so many ways. We don't just need to express ourselves through singing or a musical instrument. We can learn to move through, move with music through our bodily movements or use music as you know, a mood booster. You know, I love the the posters you'll see all in the background. You know, <laughs> all the different developmental do- domains and how it can improve um, our social skills, empathy, our mood. You know, we want to pump up song or do the housework, put on some really you know fast or you know lively music if we need to calm yeah. down, have something with really soothing, just a really steady beat that's going to sort of resonate with our heartbeat. So there's mm. so many benefits of music and I'm really curious, again, I love the early years, the birth to five. Can you talk a little bit more about all the research at the moment, or, you know, it's been coming out, but really particularly at the moment supporting literacy and, and phonemic awareness and supporting all the skills before they actually start formal learning at school? Yeah, yeah, those pre-literacy skills are so important and I think we are really focusing on them, but we're calling them by different names. You know, it's the first thousand days or it's pre-literacy skills or all of those different things. They're all focusing on the same period of time and leading into the more, not the more established, but the the schooling system when they start what kids would call big school, yeah. um, you know, what, what goes through that. And I think one of the biggest and most earliest findings was that music um, and language um, share an overlapping neural network, meaning and I often explain it like this, There's, um, they travel along the same highway in the brain. And the more cars you put along the same highway in the brain, the brain goes, oh, I need to make the road bigger. And it makes, you know, puts more lanes on it and it makes it be able to work faster. Even, um, you know, I always think of, science, you know, science fiction when you've got a road and then you've got a big dome over the top, which means you could drive up the side and go faster kind of thing. So all of those sorts of things 
um, were found very early in the field of research I look at, and they have continued to develop and understand even to the point where which particular activities relate to um, different areas and developments in the brain and, and go across them. But with language and music, it's basically the same building blocks. So a musical note is, is a, a letter. It's exactly the same thing in the brain. Um, a musical pattern is like um, a language word and a musical phrase is exactly like a, um, a language sentence. So they're the same building blocks. So the more you use both of them, um, again, the wider the highway gets, the faster you can travel along it, the more stable it becomes, all of those different things. What I like about music is you can look at it in two ways or music learning, and I think that's really important. We need to yeah. make sure we use the second word. We yeah. often use the word music and then we don't define it as a music learning experience, a music listening experience, a music, a musical experience where you watch music, um, all of those different things. So music learning can both be a support for language learning of typical language development but it also can be an intervention so as children are, who are having problems with their language they're delayed for whatever reason particularly children who are living in disadvantage or trauma music learning can be used as an intervention to kind of speed up all of those skills so that they are as close as they can get at that point of pre-literacy once they end up enter big school so I like that it can do both and I like that um there's some fantastic, easy, really easy diagnostic tools. Kids between the age of three and four, if they can keep a steady beat, um, so if they could sit there and clap together and keep that going, um, uh, it's a kind of an external example that they are cognitively ready to do reading. Now, most of us go, well, how on earth is beat keeping and reading connected? And the answer is that it's actually this overlapping neural network. It's, it's, a, it's showing the network is working and that the road system is working and that it's all connected so that a child can continue to do that. Conversely, if kids can't do that between the age of three and four, then uh, the studies that looked into this showed that they, they were reading delayed from the age of five onwards. Now, what I love is between four and five, we've got the opportunity to identify them and then go, let's do lots and lots of beekeeping to see if we can help that connectivity and get you as close as that pre-literacy level as we possibly can. Um, the other one, it's great, that is just hearing the nuance in sound, hearing the differences between but and gut, um, being able to hear um, differences in the nuance of the, the melody of speech, which is where we get all the emotional meaning from it. It's like... Um, when I, I do this activity in one of my courses where I get people to say the word no, but to say it with entirely different meanings, which is someone goes, no, it's like a definite declarative, definitely mean that. If someone goes, no, yeah, totally different melody in it, but you get a totally different meaning. So it helps kids to be able to understand that, which then helps them express what they need, their emotions. It helps them engage with the language in a way that it becomes communicative, not just I read the letters and I read the words, which sometimes is what reading becomes for kids. Yeah, definitely. And I'm seeing that more, you know, I've had so many, like over 20 years working with that birth to five, but in the last two and a half years, I've been working across grade one, two in the mm -hmm. literacy intervention program. And I love it because I'm seeing now exactly why the, you know, I know I knew it was always important, birth to five, pre-literacy. Now I actually really understand why it's important for mm -hmm. those little differences the b the p the t the s you know the s mm -hmm. you know, sounds the difference in your you know between the robot reading which was that yeah 
people at reading it and reading for comprehension and all of those things come into the curriculum once you start primary school you know the early years framework in Australia and I'm assuming it's going to be um, similar in you know in the UK in America you know they're all really focused very heavily play-based which they should be um but you know that the curriculum's not as specific as then when you get into primary school mm. and really looking at a checklist of okay comprehension recall memory um inquiry things like that so it's so important to create that strong architecture in that birth to five period and a lot of people I work with and you probably have the same they think oh just because babies don't move or they don't talk then we can just wait and it's just I say no actually this is the best time because all the sponges they're soaking up so much of your not just the the pitch change and the tone of your voice they're looking at your face and you know as I'm talking to you and you're telling me I'm I'm reading your face as well as looking for the listening for the cues in your voice and it's just yeah it's just so important to include as much musicality and tuning into all types of musicality not just learning an instrument or listening Mm. to song, isn't it yeah I think one of the things that I one of the ideas I try and get across which is really I have to repeat it a number of times so that people start to click into the idea but we now know through the research that um all babies hear every sound as if it was music so that's the really interesting part to me it's like the garbage truck outside is a musical instrument to their brains which is really straight it's really hard for adults to figure out because we've gone through the whole process of going that's speech and that's a truck and that's music. We have this idea of that's music and that comes out of, you know, the the speaker or it comes out of the radio in the car or whatever it is as opposed to actually you know, in the brain all sound all the way through our lives is processed for its musical qualities. Mm. So that is a way of I find starting to get people to shift their thinking a little bit about music is not this pigeonholed idea inside our brains. It's actually how we process all sound. And our auditory processing is our largest information gathering um, sense, which means that it needs to be as good as it possibly can be because it's taking in all the information or more information than our other senses. How do you, just coming back to a specific question, then how do you... um encourage people to understand what musicality is you know obviously my musical training I know that it's pitch it's tone it's things but how do you convey that information in a really easy way I I don't I I never use the word musicality mainly because I think it's quite laden with meaning so when you talk to a you know, my year 12s are just finishing up school this week. When I talk to one of our cellists, I can talk about musicality and he can talk about how he's interpreting the bark that he's playing and all this. So that's to me is where the word musicality works. Okay. I don't think it is under, outside the music education or musically educated community. I don't think it's a term that works very well because because it comes back to that whole idea of why should children learn music if I ask a group of people and, you know, odds on I'll get more than 60% who say so that children can express themselves. And it's like (laughs) 
it, you have to be so good at whatever it is that you do musically, whether that's singing or playing an instrument, to reach that zenith to then be able to express an emotion through the thing you're doing. Like that's 10 years' worth of learning. So I find it so perplexing that we have this idea that music learning is about is an expressive form of something, particularly in childhood, when what we would originally say is musicality is nowhere near expression when the kids are, you know, five, six, seven, and eight. It's not, it's not even close. So for me, it's not a word that works very well in the work I do. I prefer to go down the line of the um how we understand music within the brain and within the body. And it is true that it's it's in both of those and they extend back to each other and up and down. Um, is very, very, is actually the most important thing. How are we interpreting that sound as opposed to we? how are we then expressing something that is of an incredibly high, I don't know, it's like a higher order thinking about an art form. It's yeah. right up there and it's actually something that not everyone can do unless they've had all that training to be able to master the form to which they are making music through. So it's, for me it's not, a, it's not a useful word in my work. Other people use it. Totally fine. It's just not, it's not a good one for me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, another question that I wanted to go, I know I've kind of jumped here, there and everywhere, but the TED talk that you did, the TEDx talk that you did back in 2014. Yeah. Can you just give us a little, for those, you know, for those who are listening that haven't had anything to do with the TEDx talk, Mm -hmm. what was the motivation behind that? And how um, how did you feel your journey, I wouldn't say change, but how did you feel your journey grew from that TED Talk? So okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was working, well, I was still, I've always been a practising teacher, but I, for 12 years, I worked at um, in tertiary education in teacher training. So I was at university at the time and I'd done the, TED Ed video, which had gone completely viral as soon as it came out. <laughs> the absolute day it went completely exploded. Um, and then I was asked to do a TED Talk. Now, the reason I mentioned university is because I was using a lot of TED Talks in my teaching to explain really tricky concepts around education. You know, how should we look at the work that we do and looking people as having a vocation into teaching and, and what did that mean? So I understood the power of a TED Talk like really, really understood it. And you go through on the, so on the thing on the day, there's about, I think it was 10 people in our group, and you go through the process with this cohort and what the process is, and I was actually way more interested, I didn't really care about the end product. What I cared about is I wanted to know how they trained wildly different people in totally different topic areas to produce this 15 to 18 minute um performance because that's basically what it was and be engaging and get to the point I was far more interested about how they did that part of the process than I was at the performance at the end whereas a lot of people I went through with they were way more concerned about the performance at the end because mm. <laughs> they hadn't done it before whereas for me it was like oh this is just the performance um and I was interested in the middle bit but <laughs> yeah because I'm musically trained and and I'm I'm a performer and I think that's part of what was I didn't realise that actually everything I do is a performance. So, so much of my musical training has informed me in the work I do now. But I, you get assigned a speaking coach 
And that person is part speaking coach, but mostly psychologist. And they help you get into the message that is worth sharing, which is what the TED um, thing is. It's ideas worth sharing. And it's like, what is your idea? And and you get vetted along the way. You don't just get everybody in there go, let's see what happens. It's You get very carefully vetted to go into it. And there is a part of the process that you get up in front of everyone and you speak and if you really aren't going well, you actually can can be ejected from the process at that point. So there's all these processes along the way that you have to sort of get through. But when I worked with my coach, who was really mostly psychologist, um, she basically asked me, you know, what is it you want to say and just let me talk. Yep. And I get interested by or I get engaged by questions and I say, oh, that's a good question because I've actually learned through a lot of my work that it, the answer is actually not important. It's that you ask the right question at the right time of the right person. And I said my question was, well, if I could imagine, if I had the opportunity to give music education to every single child, and what I mean by that is a quality sequential ongoing music education in primary school particularly, um, if I got to give that to every child in Australia, what might be, based on the research, the outcomes that we would see when those children became adults? And then I just went, what if? What if this happened? And that became my fence post or my, like, flag in the whole speech was what if we did this? And then I kind of followed that through as a thought experiment and then I weaved the research into it to then see how might life change. So it wasn't, it was a, it was a different kind of TED talk, I think, but one that was based on if I follow an idea through what might happen and therefore if I then go back to the original one, what can I do about starting that process so that it will continue for every child and ultimately continue for our country or any country? How how might it change it? If we had higher literacy levels, it's inc- it's very, very likely we would have lower incarceration levels. If we had higher um, uh, brain health, we would have lower numbers of, of Alzheimer's and dementia. You know, all of these things are directly correlated between the two. If we had more people who had greater self-regulation within their emotions, we would have less occurrences of mental illness that would require intervention. And that suddenly changes. That means how much money are we spending on health? How much money are we spending on mental health? How much... You know, um, there's a whole bunch of budgetary things. How would that change families that are, are broken up by someone who goes into prison? You know, all these sorts of different things started to be how I went through that process of going, okay, if we did this here, what happens over here? And it was it was just basically a thought experiment, which I enjoyed doing. It was, it was good and set me up to go, all right, now I have to live up to this thing. And that really did set me on the path. It's like your accountability call. <laughs> yeah, you say it out and out loud in the open and everyone goes, so you're going to do that now. It's like, oh, I guess I am going to do that now. Yeah. Yeah, because it was it really was a powerful talk and I've listened to it so many times and every time I listen to it, I hear something different or something else just is a little bit more of a light bulb moment. And I love the fact that you didn't just talk about music for music's sake or music to become a musician. I love the way that you took in all elements of society and that's really important because, like you said it earlier, not everybody is musically trained or is it really interested in music apart from listening to it on the radio or something. So it's really, but a lot of these people 
have really important positions or they're stakeholders in, you know, in um, in providing budgets for schools or something like that. So mm. it's really important to be able to engage so on so many different levels um, the same message but in so many different ways. Mm. And I hope for our listeners, well, no, I, I don't hope. I know for our listeners today there's going to be something from this that will make sense to them and then that will plant another little seed of advocacy and another little seed of advocacy and, you know, that will create a knock-on effect that's really positive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big mission. I'm on yeah, a mission. small. <laughs> no, it's not. And it will take time. But I think, you know, and you know this yourself, if you don't ever start and if you don't start talking about it and having those conversations and reaching out to people who are completely opposite to you or different or mm-hmm. You know, you're never going to have any sort of impact um, or nothing's going to change. Um, So that's a really good, I know we're a little bit pressed for time, but I think that's a really good time to say thank you very much for coming on the show today because it's, um, I had a list of questions, I've had some, and then we've sort of gone (laughs) out of others. But I think that's a great thing as well because it's, it's, um, it's great to, see where conversations lead and be open to new ideas and to where things go sort of organically. Um, so where can we find more about the work that you're doing? Um, where can you, where can the listeners find out more about you? So uh, the work I do specifically with educators, and that's not just music teachers, it's anyone who works within a school, um, is through Bigger Better Brains. And that was actually the title of my PhD because I kept scribbling in the books and I kept going, musicians' brains are bigger, musicians' brains are better. And I went, so then it was the name that I called it. So that's the work I do with educators um, all over the world now, which is really, really wonderful to be able to work with them. And if you just Google bigger, better brains, hopefully it will come up for you. Um, a lot we we basically produce huge numbers of resources and we listen very carefully to our community if they say oh i really need this and it's like great let's go and make that um so that's part of what i do i do a lot of um consulting as well and a lot of helping people out and helping school systems out single individual schools but also you know sort of whole states as well so um going to my website which is anitacollinsmusic.com.au um, you kind of will get to see, you know, some of my work with MSO, some of my work with the ACO, um, work with the um, Catholic Diocese in Parramatta, um, all, all sorts of different things that I do um, as well. I've really, really enjoyed writing a lot recently. So um, we produce a magazine for our the BBB Plus members um, and I'm enjoying That's a really good testing ground for my writing, but I've been writing a lot for the ABC as well. So I think if you just Google me and the word music, pretty much you'll find a couple of pages worth and you can dip into anything you like. Fantastic. Well, I'll put all the links to you and the Bigger Better Brains in the show notes. So, again, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you and pick your brain, your musical brain, <laughs> and um, I look forward to having you on again in the future. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation. No worries. Thanks, Anita. Bye for now. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This episode was brought to you by my signature course, Music and Mindset, the most comprehensive online course for early childhood educators and carers. You can check it out at moversandshakersmusic.com.au, remember the double O in movers, along with lots of other free resources to inspire you and boost your confidence and skills.
If you love this episode, please spread the joy. Share it with a friend, tag me on social media at Movers and Shakers Music. And remember to download it and give it a rating because that really helps us to continue creating content that's relevant and useful for you and for many others. I'm Christy Russell and I'm here to help you understand why music and mindset matters. See you again soon.